Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Menas Kefatos. Read a brief bio here. Dr. Menas Kefatos is the Fletcher Jones Endowed Professor of Computational Physics and Director of Excellence at Chapman University. He received his BA in Physics from Cornell in 1967, PhD from MIT in 72, and after postdoctoral work at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, he joined George Mason University and was University Professor of Interdisciplinary Sciences there from 84 through 2008. He has authored and co-authored numerous books, including The Conscious Universe, The Non-Local Universe, and Principles of Integrative Science. And I'll link to a more detailed biography of Menace for those who would like to read it. And is there anything else you'd like to add to that, Menace, before we plunge in? No, my research interests are on consciousness and quantum physics and also on uh, climate change and uh, hazards, Good. natural hazards. We'll talk about both of those today. Okay. And uh, you were also a student or disciple of Swami Muktananda back in the 70s, right? Yeah, back in the, back in the 80s. 80s. Have you maintained some sort of spiritual practice ever since then? I carry out meditation. Yeah, I do meditation. Yeah. Okay, good. And I should say that Mess and I know each other a little bit from the Science and Non-Duality Conferences, which uh, I've attended for the past three years. I've always enjoyed his presentations. We had breakfast together this last time, so I've been wanting to interview Menace for a while now. Thank you, Rick. Oh, you're welcome. Well, let me start with the point here. There are critics who say that the physics consciousness parallels are metaphorical and not actual. And, you know, but since... I don't know, since I guess that guy who wrote the Tao of Physics, Fritjof Capra, there have been physicists who have been drawing parallels between spirituality and physics. And, you know, con conferences like the Science and Non-Duality Conference always have guys like you and John Hagelin and so on drawing such parallels. Yet even in your book, at one point, you say, quote, it's impossible to conclude that Eastern metaphysics legitimates modern physics or that modern physics legitimates Eastern metaphysics. Go ahead and respond to that, and then I'm going to ask you a question that a, a friend of mine sent in that relates to this. Uh, sure. They don't correspond one-to-one -one mm -hmm. because consciousness, okay, uh, let's leave metaphysics out, uh, consciousness, if it is the underlying reality, if it is the stuff, so to speak, that the universe is made of, then it's not physical. And therefore, if you are developing physical theories, you can only reach up to a certain point. And um, what we're hinting at in the conscious universe with um, Bob Nadeau and, and some of my other writings is that there is this complementarity, what uh, I now call generalized complementarity, between the physical, if you like, and the mental, or let's say the physical and the consciousness level. And if consciousness is primary, okay, then you can't expect that the physical will be identical to it. So I don't think we can come up with physics theories that will prove consciousness. But then physics deals with a lot of stuff these days that's not physical. I mean, so much Correct. the cutting edge of physics is dealing with a realm that is beyond the physical. Correct. Let's talk a little bit about what I mean by physical here. When I, mean, when I say physical, I mean anything that is within space and time, space-time, okay? And if it's outside space-time, then it's non-physical. Certainly, consciousness can be outside of space and time. So it's more primary, okay? Um, in fact, in my view, and I think a number of other physicists, space-time itself is 
not primary, but emerges, emerges from the deeper layers. So how can we get as close as possible to consciousness? Well, consciousness ultimately is the experience or the awareness of existence. It's the existence itself and the experience or awareness of existence. And that cannot be put into physics. And the best way to get as close as possible to consciousness, and this is some recent work I'm doing, is to take the mathematics as far as possible. Mathematics, as you know, of course, is the language of science, so it's more primary than physics itself. In fact, abstract physics is really nothing more than mathematics. So that's the approach. Take it as far as you can through the mathematics. Then somebody may say, well, okay, then the universe is made of mathematics. In fact, this is what Max Stegmark would hold. But then the question is, well, where is the math? Where is mathematics residing? Is it some sort of platonic realm, or where is it? And of course, the answer to that is, well, again, it's both. It's both in the mind or in the consciousness and beyond the consciousness. The, I'm talking about human consciousness. The main point here is that the universe or reality with a capital R is made of complementary entities that seem to not be identical to each other. And if you try to make them identical, then you run into into problems. And of course, the most classical one of those complementarities is the wave-particle duality or the wave-particle complementarity in quantum physics. So the universe is made of the appearance of opposites, which are, however, complementary, all springing out from consciousness, which itself is being and awareness of being. That's the best I can do. That's pretty good. <laughs> Uh, here's a question that a friend of mine, I was pondering this question the last couple of days, and then just out of the blue, this friend of mine in London sent in a question related to this, and he didn't even know I was going to be interviewing a physicist in a couple of days, but he said, uh, a lot of teachers talk about quantum physics and the fact that essentially modern physics has told us that the ground of reality is emptiness, or being, something which, no, emptiness, something which the mystics have said for thousands of years. They point to this as evidence that mysticism and modern physics agree with one another. Also, a lot of teachers say that spirituality is about experiential realization rather than belief or intellectual musings. Therefore, I would like to know, how can we be sure that the ground of reality per modern physics is the same emptiness experienced in samadhi, or is it emptiness related to the human nervous system rather than the same emptiness talked about in science? How can we be sure that just because a person experiences emptiness, that it is not just a coincidence, and this is also the nature of atoms on a fundamental level? It feels like the human nervous system is built on the macro level rather than the micro level, much less, than the, much less the subatomic level. It may be that em the emptiness a person experiences is just the result of complete balance in their nervous system rather than a direct mirror of the fundamental nature of the subatomic realm. So you kind of address that, but maybe give it another spin. Well, this is a, actually a very good question. The quantum vacuum from which uh, the virtual particles spring out and uh, where, of course, you have ultimately the ground of quantum field theory, okay, let's say superstrings, I believe it's not the same as the emptiness of the conscious awareness. So there are three principles, and I'm, I might as well talk about the three principles now. In my most recent development, and it's not, you, you don't have that in the conscious universe. We're hinting at, but we didn't have it developed as, as now. The three principles are universal complementarity, 
and I will leave out the universal. So we'll say complementarity, if you like, with a capital C. Recursion, which really means as here, so elsewhere, as above, so below. What you see here also occurs somewhere else. And the third principle is uh, sentience. You can call it creative interaction, but we like the term sentience because actually sentience is creative interaction, but it also has a little bit more. You can sense your environment, you can build, you can build things out of the environment, and you can have new entities form. And basically, if you like, it's a quote-unquote primitive awareness that even cells can have, more primitive than human awareness or human consciousness. So the word consciousness is, of course, a very loaded term, and that's where most of the problems arise. We have one word to refer to unconscious awareness, conscious awareness, human awareness, what I just call sentience, um, social primitive sensing. We have one word for all of these things, subconscious. And for example, in India, in the old schools, philosophy schools, they have many different words for consciousness. And uh, again, the analogy here is, uh, we only have, uh, in the West, we only have one word for snow, but the Eskimos have like 30 words for snow. And for us, the snow is a snow, right? <laughs> it's something white that, uh, that's it, uh, that's made of water and that falls from the sky. But they, of course, have different ways to, to talk about it. So consciousness, to make a long story short, operates universally through these principles. And those principles, if you think about them, you will see that they operate at all levels. So from that point of view, I would say there are parallels between metaphysics and physics because of the operation of universal uh, principles. And the universal principles are manifesting the existence of consciousness. But I would not derive physics from consciousness or consciousness from physics. Would it be fair to say that both uh, spiritual aspirants, especially Eastern ones, and physicists each seek to know or understand ultimate reality, but they've, they've taken very different methods to do that. If they have been successful, and, and certainly in the East there are many, many people who are said to have attained enlightenment, or which is supposed to be the sort of experiential grounding in the ultimate reality, the ground state of the universe, then physics might be poking around in that field with mathematics, and maybe the human nervous system is an instrument sophisticated enough to investigate that field and, and no large hadron collider or anything comes close to that degree of sophistication. And therefore physicists can only hope to sort of reach it in a, in a sort of a distant vicarious way. But still, wouldn't it be fair to say that even if they don't actually realize it, physicists are trying to arrive at an understanding of the, the ground of being that mystics have actually understood for a long time now. Again, I would say that keep in mind complementarity, okay? The two are the opposite pair uh, or the opposite poles of a pair, which is complementary, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, one does not displace the other. You, want, you cannot... Yeah, I wouldn't uh, say that. Right. So now the parallels are through these principles and exactly right what you said. Physicists, we believe that there's one reality. Mm -hmm. So the mystics also believe there's only one reality. Physicists will say, well, uh, we don't have all the laws, we don't understand everything, but we keep at it. 
Well, the mystics will probably tell you pretty much the same thing. Keep at it. You know, of course, there is eventually, <laughs> supposedly, a dichotomy when somebody reaches the highest level. But, you know, in terms of ordinary human experience, you know, you try both ways, let's say, and one is uh, gets you into the physical uh, understanding or the understand the physical universe. The other is perhaps getting you to understand a little bit more your own experience or to live your own experience. Ultimately, it cannot be a matter of understanding as an object because consciousness is this subject itself. And that's where it departs from science. That's what we're trying to say in the conscious universe. If you try to prove consciousness from the point of view of an external object, it's like um, John Archibald Wheeler's uh, famous drawing where the eye turns around and tries to see <laughs> the eye. <laughs> Right. Can't do it. You know, the eye cannot see the eye. You know, you all, whenever you see your eye, it's a reflection, something else, either in a camera or in a mirror. You can't have the eye look at the eye. You can't have the ear hear the ear. You know what I'm saying? So there's something else that is manifesting, and I would say it's the one behind the scene, behind the hearing, behind the taste, behind the five senses. The world of everyday experience, we experience it through the five senses, and we see objects. We see, I see you now in the camera, you see me in the camera, but from your subjective experience, you're the subject, and, I, and from my subjective experience, I am the subject. So you can't get the subject out of the way, and in fact, if you think about it, if you keep going the same way, there's really only one subject, and both you and I are aspects of that subject. In the same way, when we study the universe, we study aspects of the universe. We cannot study the entire enchilada, so to speak. We cannot study the entire universe. Why? Well, for the very simple reason that the universe contains, if you want to put it that way, or is in consciousness. And therefore, no matter how many physical principles you come up with, you won't be able to get to this objective experience. So here's a couple of Gita verses for you based on what you just said. You know, one is that verse that the self realizes itself by itself. In other words, like you said about the eye, the, the self is not something which can step apart from itself and observe itself because it is the, the observer. And right. yet, yet the, you know, the realization of that comes through it realizing itself by itself. Second thing is, you know, that, that verse where it says that one perceives the self in all beings and all beings in the self. So what you said to me a minute ago about, for me, you're the object and I'm the, the subject, right. and vice versa, if we both had the requisite level of consciousness, we would only see the self in, in looking at one another. And, and what was Muktananda's famous, famous phrase, God dwells within you as, as you? Right. <laughs> uh, but obviously God doesn't just dwell within, God is omnipresent. So if we could perceive things aright, we would see... God in all things, as well as discover God within the self, correct? Correct. I generally avoid using the word God <laughs> because it immediately brings in um, concepts about God. Which God? Is it the uh, monotheistic God? Is it the polytheistic God? Is uh, the God of Zoroaster or is the God of, uh, of the prophets? Uh, so, and of course, the answer to this is all of the above. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of modern science, uh, perhaps a better uh, term, or well, not a better or worse, but let's say a more useful term if you want to talk about neuroscience, and con it's actually consciousness, because then you tie it to conscious awareness. 
somebody may say, well, but ultimately the God, God and consciousness are the same, aren't they? Well, I would say, uh, if you want to tell me what is consciousness, uh, then I can tell you if it is God or vice versa. And of course, um, it, if it is the uh, sum total um, of everything that exists, then fine. But then what have we said? Uh, what, what have we done to advance our own understanding of the physical universe? So what are, again, are the parallels between, uh, let's, say the, let's say, perennial philosophy or mysticism, we want to call it, and natural philosophy? That's what uh, Newton used to call the science. So they're both philosophy, natural philosophy and perennial philosophy. What they, are, they have in common is this understanding, deep understanding, that the universe is knowable. It can be known. But having said that, because of the complementarities, because of the recursion and all these infinite relationships, you can't possibly know it all through the human mind and the human brain. We only have, and I think um, Dave Baum actually talked about the implicate order. He had a very nice image for that. You can think of the implicate or, uh, order as being more or less uh, like this camera here. You know, it's a, it gives you three-dimensional you know, appearance, but you see it, any part of it as a two-dimensional you know, two cut. Okay? So in order for me, you know, right now you see me on a flat screen, in order to see another aspect of me, I have to do this or I have to move around the camera, right? And then you get a different view of me, right? So the implicate order, if you like, has an infinite set of views that eventually manifest as what Bohm called the explicate order. And what we see around us is the explicate order. And through the explicate order, now this may not have been necessarily exactly the way Dave Bohm talked about it, but this is my understanding of it. Through the explicate order, we begin to get a sense of the implicate order, but you cannot see, quote-unquote, the implicate order just with the ex explicate eyes, <laughs> okay, or the explicate ears. If I understand what you're saying, though, if you talk to some people who, you know, let me just use words easily without having to, you know, pussyfoot around them, but, you know, people who are enlightened, let's say. Okay. Yeah. Then, you know, some people say, well, actually, when I perceive anything, I'm perceiving the implicate order in it. I, I primarily appreciate or, or perceive the intelligence that ultimately comprises the world of objects. And only in a sort of a secondary sense do I see them as objects. In fact, in, in Sanskrit, there's a term lesha vidya, which means faint remains of ignorance. Right. And, and the understanding is that pr primarily one is seeing the world as Brahman. And you've heard that phrase, you know, I am right. that, I am that right. thou art that, all of this is that. But in a secondary sense, you need to see telephones as telephones and cars as cars, or you couldn't function in the world. So there has to be a, at least a sheen of duality or multiplicity on the ocean of unity in order for life to be lived. That's a beautiful way to describe it, <laughs> I guess. Now, the question is who is realized and who is not realized. And of course, again, they will tell you, or I read, that for someone who is realized, they don't consider anybody else not being realized. <laughs> right, because when they look at people, what do they see? Right. Pure, they see, pure consciousness, they, pure intelligence. They see, they see unity of consciousness. So they say, oh, okay, this particular being or whatever, this connection or condensed form of consciousness is Rick Arthur or Minas Kafados, and they think they're individuals. So that is the great play of universal consciousness. You know, it, mm -hmm. it just creates images of itself 
and then forgets that it creates the images and takes the images as the real thing. And I guess maybe, and I said I'm not going to get into religion, so I won't get into much of the religion, but some of this big controversy, for example, that had to do at the time of the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, you know, in terms of icons, are they iconoclasts, and you had the icono friends, uh, and uh, they were on opposite sides of the spectrum. And the iconoclasts were saying, well, you have an icon to see the divine? That's uh, absurd. The divine is beyond the icon. On the other hand, they would say, uh, well, the icon gets you into that feeling, so you communion with uh, the divine. So actually, in modern day interpretation, they were both right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would say. Uh, you know, many times in human history and human endeavors, we find out that we're arguing about things forever, have wars, have, that really are just complementary aspects of one or the, the other. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of Gulliver's Travels, where they had a big fight about the small enders and the big enders, you know, which, right, right. which, which end to crack their hard-boiled egg on. Right, <laughs> exactly. It's funny, you know, you just reminded me that today is the, the Ides of March, and so it's... The, oh, that's right. The world is sort of like a play, if you will, and uh, it's like Julius Caesar has forgotten that he's just an actor playing Julius Caesar. He thinks he's really Julius Caesar and is going to get stabbed and right. <laughs> all that stuff. So you know, we, we've all kind of forgotten our true identity. So the, the true identity uh, is hidden, and that's, again, if you take the, uh, a little bit the mystical approach, is hidden from experience uh, through the sensory body. So we identify ourselves with the body, and the ego then becomes encapsulated into the body. And then I say, well, I'm in Ascafados, I'm a physicist, I am uh, you know, director of the Center of Excellence, uh, I, my job is at Chapman University, I'm sitting right now in Maria del Rey, talking through Skype with my friend Rick Archer. Okay, so yes, at that level of reality, all of that is correct. However, that's not permanent. And when they, when they were saying that only Brahman is real, they meant after all or overall, because this body will fall down one day. It will disappear. It will be decomposed into pretty much molecules, <laughs> organic at the beginning. Eventually, even the organic molecules will be, well, well they, they will be part of the earth or the ground. And of course, as you know, the ground itself has a lot of organic molecules. So it will go back to the soup that we call the geosphere or the Gaia. So where is Minas in that new situation? Yeah. Where, where does it reside? Okay. When, you know, or, or let's say if we don't want to think about our end, because death is always something we cannot, we don't want to handle. Let's think about our birth. What happened before we were born, before we were conceived? Where were we? Okay. The reductionists or the physicalists will say, they will say, you didn't exist. You start existing from the moment that there was the conception, that you're conceived in your mother's womb. And when you're gone, you're gone. And that's the end of it. So that's one point of view, and that's, that is, of course, the ego point of view. And it's actually pretty miserable, <laughs> if you think about it, because the ego is born and then it dies, and that's the end of it. So the ego doesn't want to die, but from the point of view of the self, there's no death. It's only transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, actually, on this show, I don't spend a whole lot of time trying to kowtow to people who have that perspective, you know, that that it's only in the material world and you know when you when you're dead you're dead I, I kind of blow right past that because most of this audience has already blown right past that right what you just said kind of um, brings up an interesting point which is that you know you're talking about well 
when you die, you're going to decompose, you're going to go back to organic elements and so on. But it seems to me that if we see anything as physical, either biological or organic, you know, inanimate or anything, we're actually not looking close enough. Um, because if you look closer, you get down to a less physical level, closer still, a less yes. physical level. Yes. And, and, you know, so human beings are almost just like lenses which kind of focus us in within a, a certain strata of perception, which is ultimately not real. Uh, who was it? I have a quote from somebody here, von Neumann, I think, talking about the collapse of... Oh, von Neumann, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, von Neumann advanced what we now call the orthodox view of quantum theory, mm -hmm. and I, I believe it's still the golden... What I talk about in my talks is that it's still the golden standard. Any interpretation of quantum theory has to do at least as well as the von Neumann theory. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, why give up the von Neumann theory <laughs> in favor of something, you know, favor something else, if something else got to do at least as well as the von Neumann theory? Yeah, he, what he said, the quote I found, the wave function collapses in the consciousness of human beings. I don't know as well as you do what that actually means. So, yeah, we can say what it means, yeah. Go ahead. Well, what it really means is that the knowledge or the collapse is in the, our knowledge of or awareness of an external object. Now, we know something specific, and that's the collapse. Mm -hmm. the way, so it's a little bit, and of course, in his case, uh, he said the whole thing is quantum. So from that point of view, he went beyond the Copenhagen interpretation. Now we're getting a little bit into specifics, because the Copenhagen interpretation had... Um, this duality between the uh, microcosm or the quantum world and the microcosm. And if you have a duality, you always have a problem, how do you bridge the duality? How do you go from one to the other? Von Neumann said, no, it's all, it's all quantum. It appears, it appears as classical. And those people, and there are many of them, and many physicists, even today, even after so many years of quantum theory, they go back over and over again and of course, the biggest proponent was Einstein himself, and say, well, you know, um, where is the objective reality? And, you know, there has to be an objective reality. As you said, Rick, when you focus in more and more, it dissolves and eventually becomes the quantum field. And beyond that, it becomes the superstrings. And beyond that, becomes the quantum foam, the uh, Wheeler, or if you like, uh, what Wheeler would say, uh, everything dissolves, um, and the phenomenon is not a phenomenon until it's a recorded phenomenon. So where does it dissolve? Well, it, it dissolves into the quantum form of Planck on Planck scale. Is there beyond something beyond that? Well, of course there has to be something beyond that, because we still don't have subjective experience. <laughs> right. Everything I said up to this point, there's no subjective experience. So we have to have the qualia. The qualia are views of reality through the experiential self, okay? And in fact, uh, some of us now, Deepak Chopra and myself, uh, for example, we say that what is more fundamental than quarks or quanta is qualia. <laughs> They're all cubes, right? <laughs> so we say Q, uh, Q, cube, <laughs> you know, the qualia is the most fundamental aspect of this um, quanta and, and quarks. Quarks, of course, being solid matter and, and quanta being the mesons or the field, or and, the field aspects. And yeah. just once more define qualia? Qualia are the subjective experiences. So everything that you see, hear, feel are qualia. You either have a, a sensory input, you have a feeling, you have a, a mental construct. All of these are qualia. But qualia still wouldn't be ultimate because it's still a, 
uh, observer, observe, process of observation situation. There's still that sort of threefold structure there. And right. so if you want to take it even deeper, you get down to pure consciousness itself where that threefold structure hasn't emerged. You're absolutely right. The qualia arise as soon as you have a separate object. Right. And that actually in the East or in the old schools, they call it Maya. And of course, there has been a lot of books written about Maya and what is the Maya, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, those sages said, Maya is the most ununderstood power of the Lord. <laughs> if you try to understand Maya, you're going to be sucked in and you're never going to escape. So Maya is actually the veiling or the, if you like, the clocking. You put like a something over your head and now, or your mask, you put a mask over and now you look somebody else. So this clock or mask is with the object-subject division. In fact, the mathematics I was talking about, the primary mathematics I was talking about is where the, you get as close as possible to the object-subject division. Even at the highest levels, this complementarity, you know, the, the identity begins to have the experience of the that, I am that, right? What, uh, when the statement, I am that, what does that mean? That, of course, is universal consciousness, and I is also universal consciousness, right? So when you say, I am that, basically, at that level, you say, well, I am everything. There is no difference between that and me. But there is the beginning. There is just the faint beginning of a division. It has not happened yet. The division becomes absolute and inseparable, and the two uh, sides of the river, or if you like to, uh, you know, are split. There's no bridge between them. When you have the object has been separate from the subject. And in fact, um, von Neumann, same guy, said in physics, you always have object-subject split. And therefore, science can only get us up to a certain point. Yeah. Sure. I mean, given the tools that physics has at its disposal, that's right, right. the best you can do. Did you ever hear that story about Maya where, uh, I forget who it was, Lord Krishna or Narayana or somebody, uh, is with his disciple and his disciple says, tell me about Maya. And he says, okay, fine, but I'm thirsty. Would you get me a glass of water first? <laughs> so he sends him off for some water and the guy, the guy gets to the well and he sees this real pretty girl there and he falls in love right. with her and he marries her and they have kids and this, that, and the other thing. And then some big disaster happens and they're all about to drown or something. And he says, oh, he remembers the Lord. He says, help me, help me. And boom, the whole thing disappears. And, and he's standing there with his master again. And the master says, well, where's my water? <laughs> right. <laughs> they are similar to the Zen, Zen, uh, Zen koans. Uh, another, of course, story along those lines is, uh, it, and it is in the Bhagavad Gita, where uh, Arjuna asks um, Krishna, and who is, of course, his charioteer, mm -hmm. and says, uh, Can you please show me your cosmic form? And Krishna says, Are you sure you want to see that? <laughs> and he says, Yes, I really want to see your cosmic form. And said, okay, here it goes. So, and he's blown back because he sees infinite universes. He sees uh, his relatives that he's about ready to kill in the big battle that's going to take place. He sees worlds disappearing in fire and uh, drowning and uh, universes explosions and all of that. And, of course, birth and death. He sees everything taking place. And he's completely overwhelmed. He says, you know, Lord, uh, please take away that <laughs> cosmic form. Just give me back your old form. And so, of course, Krishna comes back to him, and he's another 
human being and his friend. And the moral of the story is it's better to just stick with your friend rather than, you know, than, rather than try to have the cosmic consciousness type of um, vision. Another moral of the story might be that whereas you can experience consciousness in its pure form as unbounded, you better not try to incorporate all the myriad details of the universe within the capacity of a human nervous system because it really wasn't designed to, to take the, in that much. The, the human, I mean, we still don't know exactly why, why it was designed, but I think you're probably right. It was designed for us to live and experience, quote-unquote, everyday life, right? Mm -hmm. And it's actually doing very well with that, thank you. <laughs> you know, it's also designed to make us escape from uh, hungry tigers or whatever. Uh, we have turned the tables around, of course, as, as it is now in tigers and all the other animals to the point that we're driving them to extinction. But in any case, you know, it was, it, it was an evolutionary product, you know, the human brain and the human awareness. So there is evolution. It's not that there's no evolution and everything was just created, right? There's evolution. But the evolution we're talking about is self-directed, if you like. It's, and that's where quantum theory comes in. Quantum is part of the whole thing. It's driven by quantum principles and allows probabilistically to get to high, to this, if you like, to these peaks where something now is manifest from a huge complex field where the field is mostly empty and you don't really have experience of just about anything. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep that in mind that actually our brain and perhaps the neocortex itself is complementary. <laughs> it's very obvious. We have a left brain, a right brain. The two, as you know, the two brains, the way they interact uh, with each other, sometimes they, they feel that the other, the other one is an enemy. It says, who are you? you know? And it's the same, the same being. It's just a different, different part of the brain. So complementarity is building from the get-go. And in my view, rather than trying to understand the universe ad infinitum, because that it will be a mission impossible, and rather than trying to understand consciousness rather than experiencing it. Let's see if there are these universal principles and they apply at every level. And then through them, perhaps we have the common ground for understanding brain science as well as quantum physics. It's actually very rational and very pragmatic, I would say. There's a, a phrase in Sanskrit in the Greek Veda, that something that goes, Richo Akshare Parame Vyoman, and it goes on, I don't know the rest of it, but the, the essence of it is that that uh, all the impulses of intelligence which govern the universe are, they reside in, in the transcendent, they reside in consciousness. And if you can know consciousness fully and be that in its fullness, then you sort of gain the, the benefit of all knowledge, as it were, you know, because you're kind of residing on that level from which nature itself is governed. Right. And, uh, you know, without having to know all the specific myriad details of physics and chemistry and biology, which would be humanly impossible, you can live in the goal of all those disciplines and all conceivable disciplines and derive the benefit that would be had were you to somehow go through the study of them all, which, again, is impossible. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a point that I've had in the back of my mind for the last 15 minutes, and I've been playing around with all this in order to lead up to it, and it would be this. If everything is ultimately consciousness, if we can agree Correct. on that, Correct. then everything is really nothing but consciousness. When we say ultimately, it means that is essentially and ultimately what it is. So what's, what's actually happening uh, is that when we are perceiving the world and driving our car and playing with our dog and all that stuff, what's actually happening is that consciousness itself, through a self-interacting process, 
is sort of playing with itself and it's appearing to create forms through which it can play within itself but there's really nothing that if you analyze it clearly enough could be said to be anything other than consciousness. That's, uh, that's a beautiful way to put it and uh, the role of, uh, of the clocking or the maya or if you like the limiting principle is to make it appear as something else. So that play so, can take place. So the play can take place. That's not, you know, in fact, I mean, we all know that when we go to the movies, right? It's just a movie, right? When we go to play and we watch, watch uh, a, let's say, Shakespeare play or an ancient Greek um, tragedy or whatever, we know it's a play. And in fact, Aeschylus, you know, ancient Greece, he gave a definition of, you know, of tragedy and comedy. And uh, basically, from what I remember, it was to up uplift the, the observer, to, to uplift the human um, being who watches the whole thing because you see these things happening out there. You see it on the stage, right? You see really horrible things happen like, uh, you know, the son killing the mother, you know, like Oedipus and all of that. Um, and um, and uh, the wife killing the husband um, and et cetera, et cetera, or Zeus doing this and that, all these things happening. And you say at the end of the play, say, oh, whew, well, that was a good play. <laughs> Let me, let's go home now. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, similar thing you get with comedy, you get that with laughter. Um, so essentially you transcend your own, your own existence by seeing the play out there, you know, and that's why, that's why movies are so popular. That's why the Hollywood is such a, a great enterprise, so to speak, right? But we forget, and of course an actor who forgets that he is just an actor or she is an actor, Becomes ridiculous, right? Suppose uh, uh, Sean Connery <laughs> was going around, and you know he's he's a good actor. He's played in many different roles. Suppose he went around and considered himself to be 007 because he was quite famous. 007. I heard that the guy who played the original Superman ended up dying by jumping off a building because he thought he could fly. I, I don't know if that's true, but I heard that. Oh my God, <laughs> poor poor guy. <laughs> Well, he found out that, of course, that uh, gravity still works. <laughs> okay, we don't know about the first Superman, but certainly in terms of Sean Connery, and of course, Sean Connery is not doing that. He's not saying, oh, I'm 007. He's moved on, you know, Indiana Jones and all of that, and other roles. We forget that we're playing a role, and we identify with the role rather than the play. And it would almost seem that if we couldn't, it would almost seem that forgetting was necessary. I mean, I, I want to get into this thing about the Einstein-Bohr debate and whether the universe or the moon is there if nobody's perceiving it and so on. But it seems to me that relates to us in a way. Because, first of all, it took billions of years before heavy elements were developed to the point where we could have biological systems which could evolve to the point where anybody could even think about this stuff. Right. And, and yet the universe actually was developing through all those billions of years without any sentient beings who could perceive it. So wasn't Einstein right? I mean, the moon was there before there was anyone but perhaps moths to be able to see the moon. The moths didn't create the moon. It had been developing through, you know, splitting off from the sun or from the earth and becoming, you know, cooler and, and so on. Okay. So here is, I'm going to be heretic. And I'm okay. going to say that they're both right. <laughs> Paradox. So, here is the big debate between the two. They were talking past each other. Mm -hmm. Of course Einstein is right. Yeah, the moon is there even when nobody is looking at it. Okay. But who is that nobody is looking at it? 
Are we talking about human observers? Uh, yeah, the moon is there when no human observers observe. Well, you say, well, what about, uh, okay, before human observers, what about uh, apes? What about the great apes? What about plants? Even before that, well, the plants certainly know the sun is there because they, they move their leaves in a particular way to capture the maximum solar light. And probably they do something with the moon as well. We're not sure about that. So, yes, I mean, of course, the moon is there, even if human awareness is not there. But Bohr was also right, because at the end of the day, and this is why I've reached the conclusion, that you can't get consciousness out of the whole thing. It's inherent. It's always there. You might say, well, okay, it's not humans. Well, but if, you go, if it goes all the way to the bottom, and the entire thing is conscious, then the heart problem, the so-called heart problem, disappears and becomes a trivial problem. Explain what the hard problem is for the, the hard, benefit the, of listeners. Who... The hard problem uh, has been posed as a question, how can we explain the qualia? How can we get the experience of red, the color red? There's nothing in physics, in fact, uh, Schrodinger was very famous to say that, there's nothing in physics or quantum physics that will give you the color red and have you understand it. So you experience it. This is what we call qualia, right? This is what qualia is. So you can't get the qualia out of the picture. You can't get the experience out of the picture. So the question is meaningful and it's also meaningless. And Bohr would say the question is meaningless because you're asking a question within an observational context. And this is, of course, what Wheeler would say. It's a context that you're asking. It's not that the moon is not there when nobody is asking because you are watching the moon and that's the context right now we're talking about. It's not, it's not something that it's out there that you only think about it and you imagine. Complementarity, again complementarity, paradoxical. It's both. It is there and it's not there. Now, my point of view, and I would say von Neumann's point of view, Henry Staff's point of view, I would think also to a large extent um, uh, John Hagelin, I would say, of course, uh, Deepak Chopra, uh, I think, Rick, you two are in that camp, and many, many, actually many of us, Rudy Tanzi, Subhash Kak, etc., Neil uh, Tice. All of us, and many more, uh, but let's say von Neumann, let's just take von Neumann's point of view. Thanks for putting me in such august company, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Heisenberg and um, Heisenberg and uh, Schrodinger and Planck. There is the august, right there, Max Planck and um, Bohr, Niels Bohr, and um, Paul Dirac, Wolfgang Pauli, all of these proponents of quantum theory, okay? And even Einstein to a large extent, okay? The, uh, Einstein was really struggling with either or type of situations, right? All we're saying is that the subject or the observer, and I'm, I'm using my own terms, is one. Schrodinger said it, that the subjective experience is one. There's only one subject. There's not really many, many subjects. So if that's the case, then Einstein's statement or question is meaningless because everything is conscious. So what do you mean when nobody's there? You mean when no consciousness is there? But if we start with the assumption that everything's consciousness, then the heart problem disappears and Einstein's question disappears. Right, so whether it's 10 seconds after the Big Bang or 10 billion years after the Big Bang and, and sentient life has evolved, there's still only one observer. There's uh, still only one observer. Yeah. 
And in fact, when we look at, you know, there's now the delay choice experiments that, that are being performed by using light from distant quasars. The delayed choice experiment was proposed by John Archibald Wheeler to show this um, paradox that the past, the present, and the future are tied together through the act of observation, through the, again, the context of observation. So now, actually, <laughs> the last nanosecond, you make a choice here in the laboratory about the two paths followed by this and quasar that gives you either the particle aspect or the wave aspect. And you say, well, how can that be? Because the light left at this and quasar four billion years ago. And now you do something and it gives you one or the other. <laughs> so it doesn't matter whether it's a few meters in the laboratory or 10 billion light years away. It's the context, the observation. So the observer, you cannot get the observer out. You cannot get the observer out. And I think the important point to keep coming back to is that not only is there one observer, but that which is observed is essentially uh, identical to the observer itself. You know, the self realizes itself. The self perceives itself. You know, through the self-interacting dynamics, it appears to take on specific precipitated forms, but it's really only consciousness playing within itself. And of course, there are plays like that. And they, can, they can be very good, but they're also tough plays. There could be only one actor, and one act, right? And the actor just keeps talking. And of course, there are, as I say, there are plays like that. They are difficult, maybe not as exciting <laughs> because you don't have duality in there, or it's a perceived duality, or you know, maybe it's a duality within the person who is talking to himself or something. But it's so much easier if we have the objective reality out there, and that's why the universe uh, is created, to give us this objective, so-called objective reality. But, yeah. as you, but as you said, the two are... Uh, two poles or the two aspects of the same thing. And at the end of the day, um, they're really uh, nothing more than, um, if you like, mirror phantoms or mirror images that consciousness creates on the self or on its self mirror. It's a magical mirror. It's a strange mirror because you cannot see. In a, in a regular mirror, you see yourself. It's like the, uh, the uh, Wheeler eyes in itself. In the regular mirror, you see yourself in the mirror, and you see other things inside the mirror. Uh, this mirror we're talking about is self-consciousness, self-awareness. It projects on itself itself. Right. So it's a strange mirror. It's a magical mirror. Yeah. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi spent years giving lectures on this dynamics of how when existence becomes conscious, then consciousness becomes intelligent and begins to assume the role of creative intelligence. And he, he went into it in great, great detail about how the bifurcation or the manifestation takes place from you know, fundamental unity. And, right. uh, and yet, ultimately, it doesn't take place. It just appears to be taking place. It's this sort of you know, cosmic rigmarole. It was interesting stuff. But uh, basically, when someone would ask him in a simple way what, you know, why the universe manifested, he would just say, no, there's no fun in loneliness. And, and other times he would say, it's for the sake of the expansion of happiness, for the exp right. expansion of bliss, expansion of joy. Right, right. Or I would add, or maybe I'll paraphrase a little bit, it's nature is to create infinite universes. Yeah, yeah. So, and of course, one final way to say it, well, why not? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Nothing yeah, else why, to do. <laughs> why not, right. <laughs> so, yes, there is creative moments taking place all the time. It's not just one creation at the beginning uh, by an external God, 
but the whole thing is conscious, and that's what I call, I, I mean, when I say the conscious universe, it's self-driven. However, you cannot prove it. <laughs> you cannot prove it from the outside, because we are inside. But you can prove it from the inside. You yeah. can experience from the inside. And if, if proof is experience, you can experience from the inside. But you cannot prove it as a separate object, because, again, it would be like the eye trying to, trying see, to see the see eye. Itself, yeah. yeah. Right. But experiencing it from the inside, how difficult is it to get the level of technical and intellectual sophistication to be able to operate the Large Hadron Collider and interpret its findings? You know, only a, a handful of people on the planet have perhaps achieved that level of uh, sophistication, but millions of people practice spiritual techniques, practice meditation, and if those techniques systematically lead to the experience of consciousness in its pure form and the stable foundation of that, the permanent establishment of that, then f for those people, they have proven it to themselves. They've sort of d discovered the, the ground state of existence in a way that's completely satisfactory from their perspective, at least. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to heck with that. Anybody else thinks. You're, you're the only one there at your graduation, and you, know, you enjoy the bliss of that, of that state. But I actually, I would go a little bit further. I would say, yes, of course, to understand the amazing engineer that has gone into the collider, what really took to basically millions and millions of uh, observations to get uh, a little blip that we call the uh, Higgs boson, right? Of course, that you got to have a technical train, you got to have a PhD probably, et cetera, et cetera, either in physics or engineer, et cetera, et cetera. However, I claim that the fundamentals of general relativity, the fundamentals of quantum theory, if indeed these are fundamental theories about the universe, should be understood by everybody. Not the mathematics, not when you start writing. And of course, as you know, the field equations of Einstein are, are a bear. You know, even Einstein himself, he hung around the mathematicians because he couldn't handle it himself. So, you know, you guys figure out how to solve these equations or whatever. They're very nasty. And same thing with quantum theory, of course. Schrodinger's equation really only has been solved, you know, exactly for hydrogen and, you know, more or less, uh, you know, the molecular hydrogen, I mean, atomic hydrogen, and of course, we know more or less molecular hydrogen, how to go. And beyond helium, you, you run against big problems in terms of solving the Schrodinger's equation. But the Schrodinger's equation is correct, right? So the point is that these ways of us understanding the universe only get us to a certain level and there should be foundational principles so that that is really the main point i want to make here foundational principles that can be understood or experienced by everybody so i tell when i give my my talk about quantum theory i pretty much talk about the three principles complementarity recursion and sentience and i say okay let's see do they apply to your everyday life and i give examples and within 10 minutes, they all say, yeah, actually, they do apply to all of us. I say, well, you know what? They apply to the physical world, they apply to the mental world, and they apply to the biological world. So maybe let's start with those. If you really want to get down to the nitty-gritty of quantum field theory, and you want to really tackle that bear that's called super strings, good luck to you, right? <laughs> you know, the brightest minds now, mathematical physicists are going into that. Even people like myself can really tackle that, can really handle it. I mean, I can understand the basics, but uh, the mathematics, but to really get down to all these different kinds of mathematics that you need for, for the super strings is uh, you have to have uh, spent many years and uh, studied uh, this stuff. So what are we trying to do? And that's why there is a danger, for, and I'm not saying that Fritz or Copra didn't do a huge service, 
But there is a, a danger of cheapen both sides. You know, mm. so if you say, well, yeah, uh, quantum theory proves uh, Eastern mysticism, or Eastern mysticism really proves quantum theory. No, it doesn't. Neither of them proves the other. You know, they are the parallels, and they are perhaps the parallels. I would say are through these principles, but one cannot be derived from the other. I don't think either of them really needs the other. You know, I mean, the, the, no. the mystics are happy in their in their subjective experience, and the physicists are happy in their laboratories with their mathematics and so on. And it's nice for them to touch base at conferences and so on and compare notes. But um, they're each doing their own thing. They're each in their own dharma. You know. Well, yeah, some of us were trying to bridge the two and say, you know, and how do you bridge the two? Well, they have the dialogue. Yeah. Have the dialogue with no expectations, so to speak. <laughs> have the dialogue, say, okay, we're going to have a dialogue, you know, let's see. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, is that what you're saying? Hmm. You know, we actually have that principle as well. So you can have a dialogue, but, you know, it's not a dialogue that uh, you expect from the beginning to prove one that is correct and the other is not correct, or to prove that one is derived from the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not a dialogue, and it's something, it's like a, an absolute statement. So you're saying that the layman, such as myself, without an understanding of the mathematics, can intuit from his own experience, if, it, if, if it's pointed out clearly, some of these principles that quantum physicists deal with, such as complementarity, recursion, and sentience. Right. And, uh, let's tick off a list. You got those three. We have quantum entanglement. We have uh, quantum entanglement is part. Uh, quantum entanglement is part of our complementarity. All right. Uh, and then we have indeterminacy. We have non-locality. So let's go through some of these terms and yeah. talk about what they mean and how they can be sort of intuited, at least in in everyday experience, or at least in deep spiritual experience. So um, you you asked actually a very good question. You you brought in some other principles, and the the question that some of us are, are tackling or playing with is which ones are more fundamental. And of course, you can replace the three principles I, I, I mentioned with something else, but we find that these three principles subsume the others? Uh, subsume a large set of the others. Okay. Uh, maybe not everything, so we, it's a continuous search. Including so, non-locality, one of these? Include? Yeah, non-locality, of course, is the wave particle uh, duality, is a complementarity, because non-locality right. non comes because of the wave aspects. So, so let's, let's pick apart complementarity first. Complementarity is Bohr's uh, stated, and he actually picked that one, <laughs> even though they knew about non-locality, so um, he must have had the right hunch. So we're just following his steps. He picked complementarity as the fundamental way that we interact with nature, he said. So, you know, the Heisenberg picture and the Schrodinger picture are complementary pictures, uh, mathematical pictures of the quantum. The wave and the, the wave and the particle are complementary aspects. The uh, energy and the time are complementary aspects. And in fact, you ultimately tie the quantum quantities, you tie them to the uncertainty principle, because in fact, they are what we call non-commuting variables, and I don't need to go into the details there, but basically, they're both there, but they're not there at the same time, and that gives you rise to the uncertainty. So the uncertainty... Okay, now hang on. We might be losing people here, so um, yeah, you're yeah. Losing, losing me a little bit. So okay. uh, in a nutshell, what is complementarity? In a nutshell, complementarity is a principle that, I, I just sort of paraphrase it, the opposites are an absolute, but they are in a particular context, in the context of, of which you are studying. So they are, complementarity is the way we interact with nature, and it is, the uh, complementarity is a good way to account for the wave-particle duality, 
and the measurement theory in quantum theory, which of course is a fundamental aspect of quantum theory. Would it also relate to something you said in your book? You quoted Heraclitus as saying that the tension between opposites keeps the whole from passing away. Exactly. In fact, I've been told uh, by some spiritual teachers that the whole mythology of gods and demons battling each other all the time is a, is a sort of a, a symbolic representation of the, the kind of... Uh, opposition of forces that has to sort of be structured into relative creation in order for it not to just fold back on itself and <laughs> into the unmanifest and disappear. Right, right, yeah. right. So that's, that's the yin-yang uh, from the East. And of course, uh, Niels Bohr, actually, his coat of arms basically had the yin-yang symbol as, uh, because mm -hmm. he felt that complementarity was fundamental. Right. And so you said that non-locality is part of complementality. Because of the wave aspect. Because of the wave aspect. And, and non-locality, as I understand it, you can have uh, a particle here, and then on the other side of the universe, the other side of the galaxy, you can have a, a kind of a complementary or connected particle. And if, if one turns up, the other turns down instantaneously with, you know, in complete violation of the speed of light and any kind of <clears throat> relative influences that could connect the two of them. Right. So, in complete violation of the speed of light in space-time. So, maybe uh, this connectivity is outside of space-time. And it's pretty it's well established that this is the case, right? That it works this way. It's uh, pretty much established. Um, you know, the aspect experiments that were carried out in France, they were repeated um, later on by the team in Geneva. And now we even have this delayed choice experiment, which actually proves or says that, in fact, even in time, you have an entanglement. <laughs> Okay. Oh, so that's what entanglement is, this, this thing we just described, the, the two particles? Right. Okay. Right. For some reason, Maurizio wants to make that the theme of the next science and non-duality conference. So we'll see how much we can all talk about entanglement for a weekend. Well, uh, entanglement, of course, also implies love, implies, you know, if you come from that point of view, you know, yeah. mother, mother, uh, mother, a child entanglement. But in physics, it's very, very specific, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so are physicists tearing their hair out, if they have any, about why... Th how this could possibly work, or uh, has it, or have they? Some of them just ignored it, or what? What resolution have they come to to understand how two things vastly distant from one another could communicate instantaneously? A number of quantum physicists, will, uh, like uh, Despagna and um, Zurich, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Henry Stapp, uh, etc., would say, "Yeah, of course, elementary, my dear Watson, of course." <laughs> just the way it is. It's quantum. Uh, the realists, and of course among them uh, Einstein was the most famous one, they say, well, we don't have the complete picture here. The so-called EPR experiment. Uh, something is missing here. The quantum physicists who work with this, and in fact, uh, you know, Bell himself, when he wrote Bell's theorem, the Bell inequalities, basically he was trying to show that quantum theory is not right. The EPR experiments as performed by Aspect and Gissin, G-I-S-I-N, Nicholas Gissin at, um, in Geneva, show that in fact there are violations of the principle of, of locality that you would get in a local classical universe. And therefore the universe is definitely non-local the way quantum theory says it's not local. So that's one school. Of course, there are these specialties. Then there are specialists. There are those who have not given up on the hidden, so-called hidden variables. And one of them was, in fact, Dave Bohm, who was a protege of Albert Einstein. And Dave Bohm came up with these beautiful uh, hidden variables. But again, these experiments show that hidden variables don't work. 
So then people are saying, well, maybe, you know, we don't have the complete picture because there's always noise in the results and therefore it could be, you know, that we don't really see non-locality. And in fact, you can't, don't really see non-locality. You infer non-locality. You conclude there is non-locality, but you cannot see it directly. Presuming it works that way, then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's uh, another school of uh, thought. Uh, I don't think that's going to go very far. Uh, it's over and over again, uh, all the efforts they have done have not, borne out, have not been borne out in the laboratory. And then there is a vast pool of people that are just agnostic. They don't know what, what it is. It, yeah. But actually, I would say that, as we said in our book, uh, the non-local universe, uh, that this non-locality is perhaps one of the biggest, if you like, findings of uh, modern science. Yeah. Uh, um, perhaps you and I would understand this in terms of the sort of the infinitely correlated nature of creation. On, on page 179 of the book you just referred to, you said each individual particle of the system in a certain sense at any one time exists simultaneously in every part of space occupied by the system. And right. The, and the system is the entire cosmos. So it's like... This is the recursion now. Yeah, so, okay, uh, great. We're getting into recursion. So recur yeah. recursion then means that each particle, in some sense, on some deep level, is infinitely correlated with each other particle in the universe? It's, each particle contains the whole. The whole contains all the particles. And as you will see very quickly, the three principles are intimately tied together. There's not two, three separate principles. Does the word they, holographic come in here? Exactly. It's, okay. They're all holographically complementing each other, you know, complementarity. Mm -hmm. A recursion and creative interactivity or sentience, they are all part of each other. You can't have one without the other. It's sort of like the Trinity, you, you get in theology, you know, the three, the three aspects you cannot, or Brahma, Vishnu, you know, you get in uh, Shiva, you get in the East, you cannot separate the three, they're always there. The way I want to understand it is the way each particle would contain the whole is that each particle is ultimately consciousness. And, you know, you can't have, like, a gallon of consciousness versus a swimming pool of consciousness versus an ocean of consciousness. Consciousness, whether it's just beyond any kind of spatial or volumetric considerations, it's infinite in its this, nature. And right. so, so any point, which is ultimately seen to be consciousness, would naturally contain the whole because consciousness contains the whole. Right. So this is exactly what uh, Schrodinger said. He said you cannot divide consciousness. You know, there's only... Singular, the song is singular. So I think I think we're all saying the same thing. And then because of this hologra holography, or if you like, or if you like scale invariance, what you see here happens everywhere. Therefore, what you see here in a particle contains the whole, and the whole contains the particles. So that's the second principle. But the second principle is really part of the first principle. The first first principle is really part of the second principle. They are all really interconnected. There are three of them. Like, kind of like the Molarian curly. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> it's, you can't get them, right. you know. Or if you like the, if you like the corks, right? You can't split, you take, you can't sort of split them, you know, uh, to the point <laughs> that, yeah. The strong force is very strong because you cannot s split the particles apart, you know. Mm. So have we done justice? I mean, sure, we could spend the whole time talking about recursion, but what more should we say that's really essential to know about recursion? Actually, uh, you may say, well, what is in quantum theory that gives you recursion? And I would say the Pauli exclusion principle is, is recursion right there. Which is? Uh, the Pauli exclusion principle tells you that you can only put a certain number of electrons, let's say, or a certain number of uh, 
quanta of a certain kind, uh, like electrons, not photons, because you can put an infinite number of photons together, but not electrons. You can put only a maximum number together in a particular state. And it is because of the Pauli exclusion principle that you have chemical bonds, that you have atoms, that you have um, uh, molecules, that you have, uh, if you didn't have the Pauli exclusion principle, there would be no atoms, there would be no molecules, there would be just the ground state, and then you would not have structure. So whenever people say, oh, we don't really see quantum effects in everyday life, and I always say, absolutely not, you see them with your own eyes all the time. Your eyes see quantum effects all the time. If you mean we're not seeing non-trivial quantum effects like non-locality and entanglement, yes, those are not easy to see, quote-unquote. But whenever I see a plant out there, you know, from my window, I see a tree, it's because of the Pauli exclusion principle that it has the structure that it has. It's as simple as that. So the Pauli exclusion principle gives sort of discreteness and structure to things. It keeps everything from just being an amorphous soup. Uh, it gives, exactly, it prevents, uh, as you exactly you said, from everything just becoming amorphous soup, like a cloud. If our universe is like a cloud or a huge plasma with no structure, that's not our universe, you know. Of course, there's a lot of plasma in our universe, you know, a lot of clouds of hydrogen, et cetera, et cetera. But it tends to aggregate into... But it tends to aggregate and tends to form structures and eventually planets and eventually uh, human beings and eventually plants. And uh, the plants exist or the human beings exist because of these so-called uh, covalent bonds. We have, you know, for carbon, you have four equally spaced bonds which allow carbon to become a very stable, um, uh, it's a very stable uh, glue that you can glue together uh, large numbers of atoms to form molecules. So could the Pauli exclusion principle be credited with having kick-started the universe itself, or having diversity spring from uniformity, or, or not so much, maybe it emerged later? It emerged later, uh, of course it's always there. When the universe was just one atom, or you know, Lemaitre's original one atom, there was no structure in terms of art uh, particles, and this is of course a super, super string, then what you had was basically a recursion, or if you like, a, then the whole and the part were one and the same thing. You know, there was just one huge soup. As the universe cooled down, quote-unquote, and it became cooler in terms of the temperature, then you started having condensations or symmetry breakings, symmetry breakings that took away uh, the symmetries from the primordial soup and now allow structures to start being built. And of course, when it was cool enough, then you got um, atoms and molecules. But it's inherent. It is, it is part of the whole thing. The Pauli exclusion principle, or if you like, a more general term, it's the quantum statistics, because you can have, the, you can have uh, photons which don't obey the exclusion principle, and you can pack them, as many of them, together as, as, as you want. So that's another kind of structure that actually liquid helium is that way. It shows those kind of, it's called, they're called bosons, those, those particles are called bosons. So the relevance of this to the whole spiritual angle, could it be that, you know, the principles we're talking about here are responsible for the emergence of structure and specification and, and complexity, and without which we wouldn't have these marvelous perceiving apparatus to, you know, with which to talk about this and perceive the universe and all. There, there needed to be a sort of a, individuation in order for universality to become a living reality and, and not just sort of a, an unmanifest reality in and of itself without anyone living it or experiencing it. Right. 
I guess that's what's going on. <laughs> but then we don't have an explanation why. <laughs> it's just Well, we can poke around with some explanations. In fact, that's kind of the next uh, area I'd like to get into. But uh, I think maybe your, your point on sentience would be a segue to that. So tell us about sentience. Well, sentience, how do you prove that something is conscious? Well, it's impossible, right? I, I can't really prove that you're conscious. But it's highly unlikely that you're not conscious and I am conscious and we're interacting, okay? Highly unlikely. So... It's all by reasonableness, and I would say the universe, at the end of the day, and maybe that's where Occam's razor comes in, the, at the end of the day, the universe can be understood, and it's a reasonable universe. It's not a crazy universe. It's not a universe where, you know, nothing makes sense, et cetera, et cetera. That maybe there are the universes like that, but not our universe. So sentience allows for even molecules, let's say, to come together and form DNA for the, let's say, the four bases to come together and form DNA and then uh, have strands of, uh, two strands of DNA. And then you have the genetic code uh, in there and, you know, you get them in the mitochondria, you get them in the cells, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is sentience. The uh, molecule senses the environment and creates more elaborate structures, okay? You say, well, can that just be nonlinear dynamic, uh, dynamical system? It's dynamical system exa exhibit exactly that, but we are adding the element of some sort of primitive awareness. Okay, uh, an atom is aware of its environment. Even even an electron is aware that there's a proton around. Otherwise, they would not they would not come together. So, is an atom conscious? Well, it is sentient in that sense, but it's not humanly aware like we are. No, and probably skeptics would, I don't know what skeptics would say, but they would probably say something, well, it has nothing to do with consciousness. It just has to do with forces of attraction, electromagnetism, and so on that, that cause this stuff to, to work the way it does, but you shouldn't bring any kind of intelligence or consciousness into the equation. Well, I'm not bringing intelligence, but then we're back to the question of, uh, and I guess that's a fundamental question for von Neumann, what is the divide? What is the cut between conscious and unconscious? Where is the divide between life and non-life? Because today, in fact, we know that what we used to think of characteristics of life, you can have those in very, very primitive forms that don't really seem to be living, right? In the sense of even cells. So I would say that today we know way more than we used to, and I cannot prove it. None of these principles can be proven, by the way. They're not principles to be proven. They're axiomatic starting points, okay? Uh, they can't be proven by scientific method as it's ordinarily applied, but I still think that all this stuff can be explored in, in a mystical sense, you know, through... It can be explored, right. Yeah, can, and, and thereby can be proven to anyone who does sufficiently deep exploration to their satisfaction. And if, right. if somebody... But how could they convince somebody else? You know, if, if I'm experiencing the world in terms of myself, how... You know, I, I can say that to somebody, but they're going to say, yeah, sure. You're going to have to say to that person, well, you've got to do the same experiment I did, meditate for 20 years or something, and then you'll, you'll agree with me. Well, and of course, as you know, there are different kinds of meditations and different uh, kinds of uh, sure, experiences. It's not standardized. No. It's not standardized, but there are some general principles apply there as well. I would say that Rather than trying to, you know, they say they cannot be proven because they are like the axioms of uh, mathematics. You take them as the beginning, but you don't stop there. You, look, you come back and uh, look at the loop and say, do these things really actually make sense? Oh, yeah, actually they do because they seem to apply everywhere. 
huh, so maybe my original hunch is not just a meaningless statement. Well, you know, everything is, everything is connected or something, something like that. But it actually can give you some insights. For example, we have used it with Neil Tice to talk about uh, biological structures, the complementarity. And uh, Niels Bohr himself talked about that. And uh, so he, he took it beyond the quantum realm. You cannot prove them. And if you make them too simple, then people say, well, really, what, you are now saying the obvious. But all three of them taken together, I think they give us deep insights. I would say that in today's world, and this is now, I may jump up on a soapbox, in today's world, which is ruled by duality and by us versus them, we are right, they're wrong, which is getting us pretty darn close to self-extinction. Pretty close. Maybe we need to look at a different paradigm, philosophical paradigm, and say, you know, maybe we are one. <laughs> you know, maybe, uh, in fact, it is, these complementaries are not, complementary truths are not opposite and denying each other but they reinforce each other. If you like, there is a unity in diversity and a diversity in unity. And right now, we are just focusing on the diversity. We're saying, yeah, I'm different from you. If you're saying that, I must say something the opposite because you're different from me. Yeah, so diversity needs an infusion of unity on all levels. And, and if that infusion were sufficient, then I imagine there's so many different conflicts and, and squabbles that could be harmoniously resolved just by sort of seeing things from a bigger context. Uh, see, see the bigger picture. See, right, for example, right. that, that in fact, those, for example, these three principles, you know, the second principle says everything, everywhere is here is above. So what you experience, or maybe I'm experiencing, what you feel, maybe I feel, mm -hmm. okay? So that actually opens up the whole issue of love, you know, or compassion. Because if indeed it is everything is reflected in everything else, well, you know, I don't want to do something harm to you because by doing that, I'm really harming myself. And then, of course, the third principle is that, after all, you know, um, structures and sentience allows for complicated structures to arise and evolution to take place. Now, you said earlier that, um, you know, you didn't really use the word God too much because it's so easily misunderstood and you just miscommunicate if you use it too much. But I'll tell you, I mean, when I hear explanations of intelligent design, for instance. Here, here's a definition of it from the dictionary. The theory that life or the universe cannot have arisen by chance and was designed or created by some intelligent entity. Now, the word entity to me is too localized and isolated, uh, but if we take, if we broaden it out to use the word, to think of intelligence as being like the ocean of existence and it has in, inherently intelligent intelligence in its nature, then to me, it helps to put a lot of the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, I mean, when you look at anything, you know, the, the, the way a heart beats or the way a cell functions or, you know, anything, there's, there's so much, um, to, I can't help but keep using the word, so much intelligence inherent in it. Biocentrism, for instance, this guy Robert Lanza uh, talks about 200 different variables that had they been even slightly different, life as we know it, or even the universe itself, could not have arisen. So does that sound to you like kind of billiard balls running into each other? Or, or is there some sort of intelligence that per permeates and pervades this whole thing that 
and and thereby orchestrates it in in ways that are that boggle the mind. It's not an entity. That's the uh, well, entity that's, is localized. You exactly. Know, big guy exactly. in the cloud with a beard. Exactly. No, I'm not saying exactly. that. I know you're not. You're not. But I yeah. think a lot of well, and again, I'm not saying that, and you're not saying that. So maybe what they're saying, let them say it what, the way they want to. Yeah. But the intelligent design people. Maybe they have an agenda. Maybe there's an agenda there, you know. Um, sure, get the Bible and, in the schools or whatever. Or whatever, you know. Yeah. And um, yes, of course, there is an intelligent, universal intelligence, but it's, it's self-driven. The entire universe, it's, it's the conscious universe. It's not, oh, there's God and there is a universe. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. It's all one big wholeness. It's all one big whole. You can't and of separate course, God from it. Exactly. That's we're defining God. Exactly. I generally, again, I don't want to get into these arguments because then there are other people that are much better, of course, than I am in terms of theology, and, uh, and they should carry out those arguments um, in that realm. I'm perfectly happy to talk about consciousness and uh, draw the parallels, if you like, mm -hmm. and uh, see where that takes us. Well, I don't, but, I don't present it as an argument. And imagine if we had you know, some intelligent design people here, it might turn into one. But you know, I'm presenting it in terms of our understanding of you, know, you as a physicist and me as a layman who you and we both have had spiritual practice for, for many years and just trying to understand this stuff uh, in a way that makes it a little bit more sumptuous than to, than to just use sort of um, the more dry kinds of terminology. As you know, enlightened people become very devotional generally. Ramana Maharshi and, and Shankara and many others, they're, they're not content with just kind of a heartless cognition of reality. Their hearts begin to blossom and they begin to, you know, sing hymns to God or to Arunachala or, or whatever. Uh, because, and they speak of the, the sort of the marvel of, of the, the creator who, who seems to be um, running this show. So I kind of think that that's where spirituality is going and has already gone for many people. And it, and it would be nice for physics to be able to walk hand in hand with it as it goes there. That would be, that would be marvelous, yes. And um, again, um, it's a different kind of world view, so to speak. But to claim that all you need to do is slip a coin n number of times, where n goes to infinity, and aha, you get Hamlet, or you get the Ninth Symphony, and it's all nothing more than random processes that somehow combine to form. It's, it's just not enough, not enough seconds in the, in the universe to do that. I mean, the universe, uh, you, you would need to have a universe much older than the observable universe we live in if you wanted to have everything happen by flips of coins, 50-50, Chance. And even if it had somehow gone that way and brought us to where we are now, wouldn't it all start to fall apart immediately? I mean, the second law of thermodynamics, we'd be, right. we'd be dust in no time. So there's obviously something which counteracts entropy and keeps breathing life and, and right. orderliness into creation. Right. Of course, as you know, for, for living organisms, we go against entropy. We, we have a so-called negative, negative, neg neg entropy or negative entropy right. because we use the environment to survive, you know, of course the universe, is, the environment is, is running downhill, but life goes uphill, it goes against the downhill aspect. Yeah, it's all random, it's all, also from the point of view of metaphysics, or like a, a philosophical, ontological uh, view of, of reality, uh, oneself, if you take that seriously, 
then there's no purpose in life. There's no ethics. There's no ethos. You know, it's, if it's all just a bunch of random things, and of course some physicists, I would, they will remain nameless, say exactly that. They say, yeah, it's all meaningless. And, um, well, okay. So what do you tell a kid that is disturbed and maybe is contemplating suicide because it's, it sees no meaning in his or her life? You have to come out and say, well, actually, there is meaning. And don't take your life. Otherwise, why not take our lives? What the heck? Well, it's all random anyway. It's all happened by accident. And um, of course, as you know, this multiverse idea that uh, somehow we just happen to live in the right universe. And there are 10 to the 500 universes out there that are not the right universe for us. Seems very improbable to me. I mean, we even see in this universe that life exists in the most inhospitable places, you know, the bottom of the ocean, the ice in Antarctica. It's like their life just... And, and if we, you know, if we think of what we've been defining as life in a deeper sense, intelligence, consciousness, then it exists in outer space. It exists in the heart of the sun. I mean, everything is... Well, here's, here's a quote from your book. Um, Thales of Miletos. Right. There's a pervasive, unifying substance out of which everything emerges and into which everything returns. Right. The world is full of gods, and the unifying substance is charged with spiritual presence. Right. I don't even have a problem with the world is full of gods. I, I would just see that as organizing principles. Or organized principles, yeah, impul yeah. Impulses of intelligence, which actually are sentient, to use your right. sentience term, which are con as conscious as you and I are, which right. have a role or a function perhaps unseen to us, but which are every bit as real as, as rabbits and kangaroos. <laughs> and in ancient Greek mythology or the uh, Hindu mythology, they, the gods were as real as you and me, as you said. <laughs> yeah. And now, were they real or were they not real? Well, again, it's a context. What do you mean by that? Are they real? They were definitely real in the stories and in the mm -hmm. sacrifices performed and perhaps even... I don't know, getting, getting some, if you pray enough to them, something might happen that will not happen otherwise. You know, we don't really know the full picture here. But I'm going to interview a guy next week who claims to perceive them all the time. Okay. Um, here's another quote from your book that relates to this. Parts constitute a genuine whole when the universal principle of order is inside the parts and thereby adjusts each to all so that they interlock and become mutually complementary. So right. that, again, to me, is a fancy way of saying omnipresent intelligence. There's, right. there's a sort of order inherent in everything. Not, not God in the cloud with the beards, but you know, just uh, permeating every iota of, of existence that is, you could say, orchestrating it. But orchestrating it makes it sound like it's separate, you know, like the conductor is separate from the orchestra. Really, it's within it. it it's, it's what we were saying earlier, consciousness functioning or playing within itself. Yeah, it's, it's the old model, which back then, which of course is a clockwork universe, mm -hmm. that if you see a clock, then there must be somebody who, who made the clock. But the universe is not a clock. And, and, and uh, so <laughs> uh, the analogy breaks down very quickly. And so the entity, as, as, as they call it, it's not an external entity. The whole thing is the entity. It's an inside job. <laughs> it's it's self-driven. Right. It's self-driven. Right. Quantum mechanically self-driven. Otherwise, the probabilities would not would never take place. I interviewed John Hagelin a couple of months ago. 
Right. And, and uh, he said something that I've been thinking about ever since. Maybe you can shed a little light on it, and then we'll, we'll wrap up in a few minutes. But uh, we were talking about uh, relativistic time dilation and how, you know, as you approach the speed of light, time seems to slow down. And, and, and uh, or uh, he said, or do, correct me if I'm not doing justice to that, but he said that from the photon's perspective, if you were riding on the photon, so to speak, if you were if you were going at the speed of light, space collapses. So that let's say you're the photons from the Andromeda galaxy, which to, to us as stationary observers look like they've taken 200 million years to get here, from their perspective, as it were, have arrived instantaneously. Two million, two million years. Two million. Okay. Two million, two million years. Two million. So, what do you say to that? He's right. Yeah. Basically, space collapses. Mm-hmm. And there's only now for a photon. There's only there's no time passage. So who's it, to say that our perspective is any more valid than than the perspective of the photon's perspective? Uh, it's not. It's just again the context. From the point of view of the photon, of course we are not photons. We have uh, photons in our bodies, but we have physical. We have quarks. We have other particles that are make make up our bodies, making molecules. So we have a, a finite mass. Photons have zero mass. From the point of view of zero mass, basically you can have energy. Photons have energy, but the time that it takes to go from one space point to another space, or I should say space-time point to another space-time point, is of zero length in this so-called geodesic way of looking at things. Mm. And therefore, you are everywhere. It takes you no time to go from here to Andromeda. And in fact, a photon, if you like, is eternal. But of course, once it gets absorbed, it's not eternal anymore. <laughs> it causes something else to happen, right? But through space, if, if a photon from the sun, once it leaves the sun and travels to the ed- end of the universe, it travels in no time, even though for us, it may take 2 billion years or 10 billion years to get there. Yeah which seems to me to speak to the kind of elastic nature of perspective. It's all about perspective. And that, you know, uh, we, we again are like filters which sort of structure a kind of a, a space-time solidity or, or right. you know, um, what's the word? Sort of a, a kind of a lethargy, not lethargy, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but we, we've kind of, we've, we've structured, we've created a structure through our, our the mechanism of our physiologies, of our consciousness, which is we take as being so real and we take for granted to such a great extent, but which is really not what's going on at all. I mean, if we, right. if we just think of it as from the perspective of the photon, that it's a completely different universe and Abs- every, every Abs- much as real from that perspective as our... Abs- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you take it from the point of view of a neutrino, and I will leave aside the question whether neutrinos have zero mass or finite mass, neutrinos are not like photons, okay? They are fermions. But neutrinos mediate the weak force, okay? They're part of the weak force. Not, they don't mediate the weak force, but they are part of the weak force. And so if a neutrino has zero mass, it would travel like a photon from here to there in no time. However, because of its spin properties, it will interact with matter in a different way than, than photons do. So the perspective of a neutrino is different than the perspective of a photon. Interesting. And there yeah. are so many perspectives. There are so many perspectives. Yeah, <laughs> infinite blind men feeling a very big elephant. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing about this elephant is that it's infinitely 
eight infinite elephant and infinite complexity in the elephant. And in fact, it does not look like an elephant at all. <laughs> it look, it's, it's all elephant. elephants and all alliance and everything else put together. Yeah. Okay, uh, here's a final thing. And you might even okay. want to say, I don't want to talk about this. We'll do it another time. But some guy sent in a question. And he said, I'd be interested in knowing how they think quantum physics could shed light on phenomena such as subtle bodies, meaning perhaps angels, ghosts, you know, subtle beings, which perhaps relates to hidden sector matter, distant healing, precognition, remote viewing, telepathy. It's really fascinating that in some cases, complete recovery from severe injuries and diseases take place very rapidly. Anita Murjani and some of your other guests are excellent examples of such radical healing, which the mainstream bio mechanical model of medicine cannot account for. That's just really an elaboration on his point about healing. But there's all this sort of far out stuff that seems to happen at a distance or, you know, without you know, precognition, it's not bound by time or by space. How would you as a physicist relate to all that? Well, if they are real, if this phenomena are real, and of course what I would advise or what I would propose is that more research is needed. I mean, it's not a cop-out, but it is, you know, we need more research. We need to ask, be asking the right questions. You know, if, we ask the, if you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. <laughs> so we need to be asking the right questions. But within the quantum view of reality, such things may not be that peculiar. You have non-locality, you have entanglement, okay? If you start thinking in those terms, then maybe these things will make some sense. However, they have to be demonstrated, and as you know, they're difficult to demonstrate because of statistics. So there is a statistical problem that enters the picture, and most of the arguments that go back and forth has to do with statistics, and whether you believe statistics or you don't believe statistics. So for now, I think that that discussion will... It's like a whole other discussion. It's a whole other discussion, but I would say within the context of the non-locality, and let's say uh, recursion and uh, entanglement and complementarity, you take them all together, well, maybe there's something to them, but then we have to talk about specific things happening in space-time and specific measurements that are being made, and that is an entirely different story. Mm. Uh, in the beginning of the interview, you mentioned um, an interest in climate change, and you know, you're addressing that in some, through some of your work, and in your book, you actually managed to tie non-locality to climate change to a certain extent. Do you want, in conclusion of this interview, do you want to say a few words about that and you know, how you feel? Yeah, just, so let me, yeah. let me just finish one, the previous thought. Oh, you know, sure. Yeah, this so-called psi phenomenon, you know, I think they ought to be opened up and to scientific scrutiny and to scientific uh, research. And in fact, there's a lot of, as you know, a lot of... Yeah, uh, Dean Radin, and people Dean like Radin for example, and um, Daryl ba uh, Bam, and et cetera, they have really uh, follow, uh, as far as I can tell, to uh, impeccable scientific uh, criteria to carry out these experiments. Mm -hmm. So it's time, I think, for this phenomenon to really be admitted as not necessarily true or not true, you know, but admitted within the context of scientific methodology and not be excluded because then if you exclude something like that, you are practicing dogmatism. Yeah, and the reason it gets excluded is it doesn't fit the paradigm of those who don't want to sort of accept that there may be more to the universe than the gross material nature of it, and science, uh, quantum physics has, you know, at least a century ago, proven them wrong anyway. 
Right, and if, if we were just one with uh, with uh, established points of view, there would be no quantum revolution, there would be no, no theory of relativity, and there would be no electromagnetic theory for that matter. You know, all these things came up because some physicists or some brave physicists started questioning and said, well, maybe this, we don't have the full picture. Now, it's not necessarily perhaps the same, identical the same with psi research, but I would say, hey, you know, okay, establish the criteria and don't always deny the research to be done, you know, right. because it's far out. It's not scientific to, d to do that. Right. To deny it. Right. Okay. You want to say a word or two about climate change? Well, climate change, in a way, it's actually similar. You have a complementary, right? And this is something that the two sides, again, are arguing with each other. They are shouting at each other, right? More or less like the creationists and the uh, evolutionary uh, evolutionists, you know. They're shouting at each other and maybe they ought to take a look at each other's point of view. So indeed, there is a climate change and indeed something's going on, there's no doubt about it. The polar ice is melting, okay. I mean, sorry, but our satellites show that. Now, whether it is just all of it, global warming, and how much of it is due to greenhouse gas, you know, burning, fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera, perhaps can be debated. In my mind, I would say the vast majority of scientists, we believe that it is real and that it is uh, human fingers are at present. 97% of climatologists believe that. There was some story that came out the other day that only 50-something percent of meteorologists believe that, but meteorologists are your TV weathermen. They're not climatologists. 97% of climatologists believe that global warming is real and man-made. So 97 or 95% believe that it is real. Of course, the, uh, the atmospheric scientists or the meteorologists, they're looking at it from a different perspective. I think the arguments that go back and forth have to do with what if scenarios, what if we stop burning fossil fuels and the economic factors enter the picture, okay? Now, I'm not saying that scientists should not address these issues. In fact, they are part of this new interdisciplinary field of science. I mean, that's what it really means. You know? Or maybe some people call it transdisciplinary. You even go beyond science. You have to bring economics, energy policy, et cetera, et cetera, international policy. All of these things have to be brought together. I think the problem is that it's not a simple solution. We actually are doing some of that research here at Chapman University, and we're asking a much more limited set of questions, like what are the possible effects of climate change, future climate change, on agriculture in the southwest United States? Very specific. If you wrap your hands around it that way, you can maybe make some progress. But I would say that to deny global warming and not do anything about it, it's getting us closer and closer to the precipice. When I talk about this in my class, I say, well, if it is, if somebody told you that, you know, you have a risk perhaps of heart attack because, uh, you know, some markers or some things in your family history. And you say, well, doctor, you have not, you have not proven that I'm going to have a heart attack. And of course, doctor, you cannot prove that you're going to have a heart attack. But would you go around foolishly doing the same things that you were doing before if you knew that, well, there is a little bit of higher probability in my case that probably there will be a heart attack, okay? Then maybe I should exercise. Maybe I should not eat as many fats, polyunsaturated fats and all of that. Or I should really not uh, eat so much fried food or maybe cut down a bit on the consumption of meat or whatever, whatever you yeah. favor. If you there's know. a chance that it's true. 
you know, the, if the, it's a chance, the, the implications of it panning out are so catastrophic. You know. Exactly. Irreversible. Yeah. That's it. Irreversible. And, you know, as some people point out, it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. Of course it matters, but the, the argument doesn't have to be resolved because the solutions to it are so economically exciting and technologically exciting and would produce such a better world for us anyway that we ought to make a moonshot effort to implement them and, and yeah, absolutely. do all we can to you know, get renewable technologies to the forefront. Right. I, I just read that um, yesterday. Here is again a situation where us versus them, rather us together. So the us versus them is the US and China, and I'm not going to take either point of view here. You know, but they, they are producing 50% uh, of the uh, carbon dioxide you know, that is released uh, by burning fossil fuels and burning. 25% to 95%, more or less. Actually, China has just surpassed the US. Okay, so even though they're the two main culprits, they violently disagree with each other about what to do about it. Okay, come on, guys. <laughs> and now they actually, in terms of the UN uh, framework, right, they are saying, no, the UN framework says something completely different. The Chinese will say, well, it doesn't put the blame or the honors on, um, on the developing nations, but it's, it puts it on the developed nations or the industrial nations. And uh, the U.S. rightly says, well, you know, but this is not a static situation. Things have really changed. And now you still have, you know, the Chinese are producing a lot more pollution than they used to. Clearly, both sides are right. And, of course, now they are beginning to say, well, maybe we should just talk to each other directly. Yeah. Okay. You guys, just talk to each other, so rather than posturing and all of that. But a lot of these problems, the scientific problems, have become political problems, and then become posturing problems. And then, you, Congress, you, and then Congress gets involved, and then... Yeah, uh, right, and most of them don't even understand science. Right. <laughs> but, you know, what puts this in the, this discussion in the context of this whole interview is that if you, you know, you have this sort of irres, irre, irresolvable conflict going on on one level, um, if you step it up to the bigger picture, right. then f our, our competition should not be over bickering over who's producing the most uh, carbon. It should be over you know, who can sort of succeed in the race to find you know, environmentally friendly technologies. And if the U.S. were to succeed, for instance, we'd be selling those to China. Right. So, right. so we'd win. So, we'll, be, we'll, we'll make like bandits, yeah. yeah we'll, but instead, yeah. the fossil fuel industry controls the Congress, and, and so most of the right. Congress is, doesn't even believe that global warming is real, and on and on we go. Right. But there's hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Well, there's hope at the end of the tunnel because, in fact, human beings are human beings, and people are now... In fact, what may turn things around in China is that people are gasping for <laughs> air. Yeah, they can't you, breathe. They can't. they can't breathe. You look at those pictures of Shanghai or Beijing, yeah, you know, and people, and they're all wearing masks, and people are not becoming very upset. They say, hey, you know, <laughs> the government there didn't, never said, oh, it's one or the other. You know, you're either going to gas to death or you're going to have economic uh, development. Yeah. If they put it that way, people say, well, I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. <laughs> I really want to do that. Uh, you know, again, it's not a black and white issue, but, you know, of course, they're trying to, to develop economically. It's all of that, um, but it all has to be done within the right context again. Uh, there's a quote from the Gita, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Lord Krishna says, whenever dharma, the power which sustains evolution, is in decay and a dharma flourishes, then I create myself to protect the righteous and destroy the wicked. I, to establish dharma firmly, I take birth age after age. 
and uh, the way I would interpret this in the, in the light of this conversation is not that the blue guy is going to come back and <laughs> walk around, and, but that there will be and is actually already an upsurge of spiritual substance, to quote this fellow from your book that I quoted earlier, spiritual presence in the world that is reaching epidemic proportions or, and perhaps even a tipping point just as much as climate change is reaching a tipping point and that it's nature's response to counterbalance uh, a dire situation. And that again speaks to the fact that this is not a mechanistic universe. It's an, intelli right. it's an intelligent one. Right, right. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. I think those are good ways to, good horses to end our discussion. Alrighty. Well, <laughs> okay. thanks. Let me make a few. Well, thank you. Yeah, let me make a few concluding remarks of general nature. So I've been speaking with Menos Kafatos. I hope I pronounced that right. I'm sure I'm getting it. Kafatos. Kafatos. Okay. okay. And um, this is part of an ongoing series of interviews. There are 220 something of them now, and they can all be found at batgap.com, B A T G A P. You'll find there an alphabetical index, a chronological index, a discussion group about each interview, a, a button to click if you'd like to donate, a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, a bunch of other things. So visit that. If you'd like to see Menas, uh, he'll hear him speak. He'll be at the Science Non-Duality Conference in San Jose in the fall. You're going again, right? Yes. And, and I'll be there as well. I'll have one big happy reunion. It's a lot of fun. So, thanks for listening or watching. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, Thank uh, you, Rick. We'll see you all next week. Oh, one other thing that's on the site, which I forgot to mention, there's a, there's a, a link to click to subscribe to this as an audio podcast if you'd like to just listen and not see our pretty faces. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.